Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. In today's episode, we're joined by Ambassador Bob Zellick. Ambassador Bob Zellick is one of America's finest public servants. He's a lawyer by training. He was the 11th president of the World Bank Group. He was also U.S. Trade Representative. He was Deputy Secretary of State. He has had a series of important roles in government. He's written a fascinating book called America and the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Hugh Hewitt tells me to to say a name of a book seven times in an interview, so I'm going to try and say it seven times. So America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy by Bob Zellick. This book is written in the tradition of Henry Kissinger's book, Diplomacy, and I think is also there are other books similar to, to Bob Zellick's in that tradition of a practitioner looking at history from both a historic perspective and a practitioner perspective. I just can't tell you how interesting this book is. I bought it retail. I read it cover to cover. I dog-eared the pages and circled it enthusiastically, lots of stuff. So I ate this book up. It's fantastic. And I strongly recommend everyone go out and read Bob Zellick's new book. Bob, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for such a glorious introduction. It's easy to do because it's true. So it's, it's, I'm happy to do it. So why did you write this book, Bob? You've been working on this book. If you read carefully, you've been working on this book on and off for over 20 years. Well, Dan, as you know, when I was in government, I I often drew on history as I was trying to think about policy problems. And the basic idea was I wanted to encourage others to to think in that way and perhaps for a younger generation to, to draw on that experience. As you know, many foreign policy courses in universities these days focus on, on international relations theories. And they're fun to play with and intellectually stimulating, but my sense was they were a little distant from the work that I did in those various jobs that you mentioned. And as, as you noted, uh, Henry Kissinger in the 90s wrote a book titled Diplomacy, and he used history to talk about foreign policy. But being Henry Kissinger, it, it tends to incorporate the European realpolitik perspective. So for years, I've been playing with the idea of how to try to do something that would draw more on the American experience in the pluralism of American ideas in foreign policy. And I suppose one of the other aspects is that in those various jobs I had, I would often probably torture younger colleagues to ask them about what history they knew because I had no idea what they learned in school. And I discovered insofar as they had learned history, it tended to be from World War II on. And as you know, the first 150 years are full of fascinating figures and incidents that I wanted to recall a little bit from the mists of time. And I suppose the approach that I took, and I'm glad it worked for you, was to to focus on stories, because everybody likes stories. And so in some ways, the book is a multiple biography, because each chapter focuses on a person or a few people and a particular episode. And I do that to try to emphasize the problem-solving nature of the story and, and of diplomacy. And then in addition to giving the history, I try to apply assessment drawing on some of my experience. Story after story, I knew nothing about, and I consider myself a pretty well-read person and a pretty well-educated person. So the first story about Ben Franklin in the cockpit, I knew nothing about. 
Let's just start with that because I knew nothing about this, but I think it's actually quite a seminal moment in American history, but people don't realize it. Well, what, what that's about is it's the story of, of Ben Franklin and the diplomacy of, of our independence. And that little vignette is the idea that in 1774, when he was representing four colonies, including Massachusetts, he was hauled before the Privy Council of Britain in a place that was called the cockpit because that's what it had been used for under Henry VIII as a place of entertainment. And he was involved, in a sense, he was one of America's first whistleblowers. So he had sent some private letters of the governor of Massachusetts to the Massachusetts legislature that put the governor and the lieutenant governor in a bad light. And so the Massachusetts legislature wrote the British government, sort of wanted the governor recalled. And of course, the tables were turned. So for about an hour, Franklin stood motionless while he was really drawn and quartered orally before the Privy Council. And the quotes from some of the people of that, whether it's called bull baiting or vicious and others are extraordinary. But during that hour, uh, he doesn't move a muscle. It's a complete embarrassment in a rather small society. So the interesting connection is, is that four years later, when he's representing the young United States in Paris, and he's signing America's first two treaties with France, he wears a somewhat unusual set of clothes. And, and one of his colleagues, Silas Dean, says, you know, why did you choose this? It was a worn blue Manchester velvet suit. And Franklin says, a bit of revenge. And it's because it's the same suit that he had worn uh, four years before. But the Franklin story, you know, is a wonderful color to begin with. But one of the reasons that I chose it, Dan, was because in some ways it has a lot of resonance for the next 200 years, including for today, because, you know, it is a story about negotiating war to peace, which is something that we've had to do on many occasions, including through today. It was a challenge of how do you play a weak hand in diplomacy? And this struck me because former Secretary of Defense Mattis, when he stepped down, mentioned that he was surprised to realize the United States no longer had total domain dominance. And I was just reflecting that for much of our history, we didn't have total domain dominance and we had to rely on diplomacy. Franklin is also the man who really invents public diplomacy. If you think about it, when he goes to France, no one knows the United States, but Franklin was famous, particularly as, a, as an inventor, but also as a publisher. And so he uses his reputation to appeal to the style of France. He becomes a figure that is put on rings and snuff boxes and all sorts of sort of utensils to the point where Louis XVI gets a little jealous and he gives Franklin, a fan of Franklin, uh, a chamber pot with Franklin's picture uh, at the bottom. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, like many diplomats and generations since, Franklin had to negotiate with his own delegation. He got along quite well with John Jay. With John Adams, at one point, he was moved to say, Adams is always an honest man, often an intelligent man, but in some things, in some circumstances, absolutely out of his mind. And you can imagine what Adams, as a curmudgeonly person, was like to deal with. <laughs> he had to negotiate with allies and with Congress. And indeed, Congress had ordered the American delegation not to act with Britain without France's agreement. The delegation ignores that. They cut a very good deal with Britain. And then Franklin has to go back and apologize to the crown in, in Paris, in part because he has to ask for another loan. And at the end, one of the parts I really like was that Henry Lawrence, who was a, another negotiator, and by the way, is the father of John Lawrence, who's the, the young soldier who was with Alexander Hamilton in the Broadway musical. 
uh, unfortunately dies in a late skirmish in the Revolutionary War. But Henry, Henry Lawrence says to Ben Franklin, he said, you know, I'm sure now you've earned your country's gratitude. And Franklin very wisely said, you know, I've never known a piece that didn't generate critics. So the invocation from the Bible that blessed are the peacemakers probably refers to the next life, not this one. So <laughs> if you think about it, you know, think about other aspects of diplomacy through today that involve all those same issues. So there's several other pre-Civil War that are kind of also sort of not, not as well covered. The one that I was particularly fascinated with, with was the Louisiana Purchase and the Purchase of Florida. The both are quite complex geopolitical exercises, brinksmanship, complexity, risk-taking. Talk a little bit about those two because they're, I think they're interlinked, right? And I think it's a story that's not, I don't think, very well known, frankly. Well, with Louisiana, the question that historians all have been faced is, was, was Jefferson lucky or good? So people probably recall, we, we bought Louisiana for about four cents an acre in, in 1803, really doubled the size of the country. But Napoleon was under pressure to sell it because he, his original idea was he was going to create a new empire depending on the sugar islands, including Haiti, that Gulf Coast, including the Spanish possessions, and then New Orleans and the inland area. Well, he has a lot of troubles in Haiti, and as war resumes with Britain in 1803, it's a question of whether they will have maritime access. So those who think Jefferson was lucky basically fell, well, he fell into the purchase. The other side, however, and this is where I try to give people a feel of the diplomacy, Jefferson has a very clear sense of objectives. From, he doesn't get diverted. He knows what he, sort of, he wants to accomplish. He's quite agile with the tactics that he'll pursue, sometimes threat, sometimes obviously he eventually sort of purchased it, trying to suggest to the French that this will just push the United States into Britain's hands. He keeps channels open. And the critical channel actually includes a private sector one because it's the DuPont family operating in both France and the United States that comes up with the idea of, well, why don't you buy the territory? And Napoleon needs the money. Jefferson also has a good sense of timing. And this is one of the themes that sort of runs throughout the book. As much as I admire Alexander Hamilton, you could almost imagine that Hamilton might have rushed too quickly into a threat. And if you think in more recent times, sometimes presidents miss things through inaction. So one of the criticisms of President Obama is he relied too much sort of on the arc of history. Jefferson is quite effective in using domestic politics in Congress which obviously is a new concept for Europe at that age to understand sort of the pressure and raising militias and perhaps threatening a military action. And ultimately, this is a wonderful part of a kind of a theme I emphasize. Jefferson is ruthlessly pragmatic, because remember, he has resisted Hamilton's idea that the Constitution should be interpreted liberally, but there's no authority in the Constitution to buy territory. And at first, Jefferson thinks, well, I have to ask, get a constitutional amendment, and Madison says, no, no, we can't wait. Napoleon may change his mind. And then, then the other part is most people know about the difference that Jefferson had with Hamilton on the financing system of the United States. And of course, the irony is if Hamilton hadn't created the value of U.S. debt, then Jefferson wouldn't have been able to use those bonds to make the purchase. And I think the one other piece that, that's kind of, you know, I hadn't expected this, but it runs throughout a lot of the chapters is it's often important to see how people work together as a team. So Monroe is the man who does the purchase. And it's, Monroe is nowhere near as brilliant as Jefferson or Madison, but he was probably a better delegate at that point because 
he has to make a decision. And sometimes Jefferson was a little slow on making decisions. And similarly, Madison, as I mentioned, was the one that convinces Jefferson, you, you got to move on this now. You can't wait for a constitutional amendment. So I, I conclude that there was some luck involved, but also it's worth looking at, at the, the methods of Jefferson's diplomacy. What is the Monroe Doctrine? You talk about it in the book. What is the Monroe Doctrine? Why does it matter? Some folks ascribe the Monroe Doctrine to mean certain things, and perhaps it's not exactly what what is actually was meant. I think that, that's sort of one of the things you get into in the book. That's a wonderful question because it shows how sometimes these concepts grow in meaning at different times. So the later use of the Monroe Doctrine was quite different from what I refer to as Monroe's Declaration, which was developed with John Quincy Adams as Secretary of State in 1823. So the heart of the Declaration was that there should be no future colonization of the Americas. There, in a sense, is an interesting geopolitical reciprocity, where the U.S. says, we won't interfere in Europe, Europeans might have thought that was a little brash, but remember, this was the era of the Greek Revolution for democracy, and there were calls that we should be involved with that. But on the other hand, the Europeans should respect the will of the Americans. And so it included definitely geopolitics, but also the moral superiority of republicanism. We said that that was, that was our democracy movement of the time. And it's interesting because it's the first public U.S. statement on a controversy that did not involve immediately U.S. citizens or territory. So it's the first sort of external statement. But if you think about what I just mentioned, it it says what Europe should not do. It doesn't say what the U.S. will do. So in the chapter, I combine it with Henry Clay, who becomes the Secretary of State when John Quincy Adams becomes president, because Clay was the first promoter of an idea we've seen recur in U.S. history, which is building the hemispheric model. What can we do with sort of Latin America? Bill Clinton had the idea of democracy in the Americas. Others had had it before. So Clay is playing with the idea of, can you have a hemispheric link of commerce and defense and neutrality? But in a wonderful American way, he struggles for a whole congressional session to get Congress to ratify his emissaries and pay for them. And it's based pure on Andrew Jackson, the Jacksonian party politics against the administration to resist it. But then by the time that the emissaries go, one dies along the way and one arrives too late. And as you mentioned, Dan, you know, over time, the Monroe Doctrine was kind of perceived as a right to interfere in the region's security. Under Teddy Roosevelt, there was something called the Roosevelt Corollary because of rebellion in Santo Domingo, today Dominican Republic, to have a police action. It was the notion of a sphere of influence. But I also mentioned two other figures from the early 20th century are wonderful people, Elihu Root, international law, Charles Evans Hughes, both great international lawyers. And they always emphasize that the Monroe Doctrine was basically a statement of U.S. security. There's no basis in any international law. And of course, it's the tension that you've seen in your own career of kind of good neighbor policies or Pan-American cooperation or trade and others. So part of the idea in the book is I wanted to plant the seeds of these stories, explain their origin, but then also give people a little feel of how they evolve over time. There's a theme throughout the book about seeing North America as a continent, as something special. Talk about that. Yeah, I always find this fascinating because if you go on the website of most foreign policy institutions, probably even including CSIS or foreign affairs, 
there'll be papers on Europe and Asia and Middle East and sometimes Latin America and Africa, almost never on North America. And obviously it was critical for us in the 19th century. In the 20th century, we almost went to war with Mexico again. You also had the Cuban Missile Crisis, Caribbean, if you think about it today, issues of Venezuela, NAFTA and the changes in Mexico. And so what I wanted to draw attention to was that today, you know, if you ask the American public what their interest in foreign policy, you'll often get topics like immigration, narcotics and organized crime, environment, sort of economic integration. That's the North American agenda. But the bigger picture is one that is best summarized by a statement that Ronald Reagan made in the speech announcing his campaign for president in 1979. He said something that would have been unimaginable in the last four years. He said, you know, it's time that we stop thinking about Canada and Mexico as our nearest neighbors as foreigners. And it's important for them to be stronger, not weaker. And over my career, that's an idea that I've tried to build on, not only for the relations within our neighborhood, but also the recognition that the stronger our continental base 500 million people, three democracies, better demographics, you know, if we look upon human resources as an asset, not as a problem, energy self-sufficiency, ability to export. These all give us strength when we deal with China or other parts of the world. And if you think about it today, there's going to be challenges with Mexico on the narcotics issue. There's the implementation of the new NAFTA, the USMCA, and the labor provisions. So these really should be one of the cornerstones of America's foreign policy. So let's talk about the Civil War, William Seward and Abraham Lincoln. There seem to be some very complex foreign policy done to keep other actors out of the war because there was an attempt by the Confederacy to bring European state uh, players into the war on their side because they were providing cotton for the textile mills in the United Kingdom, for example, right? Is that basically part of the story? Yeah, the reason I love this chapter, I mean, you know, to be honest, whenever you see Lincoln, it's just the brilliance of the man just sort of shows through the pages. But of course, you know, for many listeners, they'll have read many books on Civil War battles and generals and slavery now and more recent social effects. You rarely come across the topic of what about the foreign policy in the Civil War? And if Britain and France had intervened, and they almost did a couple of times, it would have changed the course of history. So it starts with the fact that the incoming administration has to deal with a situation where Britain and France expect that the Confederacy will succeed. The outgoing Buchanan administration had almost sort of accepted it. And so the posture of Lincoln and Seward goes back to your point on brinksmanship. On the one hand, they needed to raise the threat to signal if you do recognize the Confederacy, there will be hell to pay. On the other hand, they had to be restrained because as Lincoln emphasized, one war at a time. And so it's a classic diplomacy of of brinksmanship. And we almost go to war in late 1861 because a Navy captain takes the Confederate commissioners off a a British packet. And it's a wonderful story. I won't get into all the details of how Seward engages in creative lawyering to basically give the people back. And another interesting thing for, for people who've sort of watched The Crown, Turns out Prince Albert, the consort of Queen Victoria, intervenes in the editing of the notes to the United States, tones it down a little bit, which Seward recognizes when he receives the notes. He probably helps avoid a war, and sad to say, he dies of typhoid within sort of two weeks of it. 
Then a little bit later in 1862, as you mentioned, because of the cotton issue, there's another movement of Britain to start to recognize the United States. And here I draw an analogy to something that Sir Michael Howard, the great British military historian raised. It was a classic case of what we would have called over the past decades, humanitarian intervention. It was this horrible bloodletting, you know, and, and wouldn't it be better to offer mediation or somehow try to sort of bring the parties to a peaceful end? The British wisely recognized the United States wouldn't accept it. They just get drawn into the problem. And so as Sir Michael Howard pointed out in a conference I was in in the 90s, sometimes you just have to let these things burn out or wait until the parties decide they're done with it. And then there's the wonderful story of the Emancipation Proclamation, where at the time, Lincoln thinks that this might actually affect the public opinion in Britain because it shifts the United States from simply preserving the Union to wanting to end slavery. But it is a requirement for recognizing how other people will view an issue. And recall, in Britain, you'd had the what they call the Indian Mutiny of 1857, what the Indians would have called a rebellion for freedom. But from a British point of view in 1862 or 1863, the idea of urging an insurrection by Native peoples doesn't look so good. And so the first British reaction is quite hostile. But then you start to see the Anglo-American public diplomacy kick in. And Lincoln and Seward actually work the working men's associations. There's in Britain, there's a famous letter to the workers of Manchester. And you see the mood change in the process. So there's also an interesting part I'll leave for you and the readers about the French intervention in Mexico, which is another critical choice about how we basically stop that. And at the end of the war, Civil War, Grant and Sheridan basically want to kick the Maximilian, the French-based emperor, out. And Seward quite shrewdly realizes we don't want to get drawn into that war again. And he allows the pressure to basically build to kind of force Maximilian out. And uh, it's the, throughout the Civil War, it, basically, the U.S. doesn't want to accept the French intervention, but it doesn't want to anger the French because it doesn't want the French to recognize the Confederacy. So what the story really emphasizes, Dan, is what we touched on from the start. You know, you can come up with offshore balancing and realism, idealism. But what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of show the practical choices and work people have to engage in diplomacy. So the unions preserved America as a global power is one of the points you make is that if we didn't keep the union, we wouldn't be a global power. And there's an interesting point, which has kind of been lost to most historians. Before the Civil War, statements of Daniel Webster and others treat the union almost as a mystical concept. After the Civil War, it becomes even more so because they've tried to expunge what they believe is the original sin of slavery. And the concept of a confederation or federation of states influences their thinking internationally. It kind of leads to the notion of cooperative methods with other countries. John Hay, Teddy Roosevelt, Asia. We've had a relationship with Asia for a long time, whalers in the Northeast, commercial relations, religious missionaries. Going back 200 years, and as you say in the book, many of the folks who knew most about Asia were children of missionaries, primarily. So if I say to you, John Hay, Teddy Roosevelt, Asia, tell me about that. What this is really kind of the interesting advent of the U.S. as a world power, but not necessarily one that's willing to engage militarily to protect its interests. So John Hay uses the open door notes to try to achieve modest goals. Number one, prevent the carve up of China, 
which was starting to occur with the colonial powers of Europe and Russia and Japan, just as had happened in Africa. And so the United States is the defender of China's territorial integrity, and also an open door for, as you mentioned, spreading Christianity and sort of spreading commerce. So one important part of our relations with China, I think more than any other country, is this missionary impulse. We've been trying to convert the Chinese, whether to Christianity, to commerce, uh, capitalism, small r republicanism. And it does raise the question for that today about perhaps accepting the Chinese as Chinese as opposed to what we want them to be, dealing with it in a perhaps more practical, hard-headed perspective of what's going on in China. But then with Teddy Roosevelt, what I focus on, and this is, most people think about Teddy Roosevelt with the Great Fight Fleet or going up San Juan Hill and his sort of military prowess. But what he really does in this chapter for which he's awarded the Nobel Prize is he mediates the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05 and the first Moroccan crisis of 1905-06. And the reason those are important is that what he's basically trying to do is reestablish balance of power so that you don't have a breakout of what frankly occurred in 1914. That was like Morocco, that was another fringe conflict on the borderlines of Europe that led to this explosion of war all across Europe and and indeed the world. But the Russo-Japanese War is interesting for today as well because as we think about issues on the Korean Peninsula, this Northeast Asia is sort of uh, the cockpit of tensions, whether it's Mongolia, Korea, Russia-China relationship. Japan had defeated Russia very significantly to the surprise of many people in the war. And Roosevelt uh, performs this very artful mediation, just as he did in the Moroccan crisis, to kind of bring this to a peace. And what I partly try to draw out in this chapter, Dan, is kind of the skill of a mediator, which people may be surprised Roosevelt was, was quite good at. He prodded the parties to face difficult decisions and not expect others will bail them out. He drew on the help of a diplomatic network. This is a young United States. A lot of it was his own sort of personal ties. And by the way, there's a contrast here with what River Wilson can do in 1914 to 17. He has this ability to win trust with partners. He's very good at courting messages from the other parties. He gets Kaiser to sort of push the Russian czar. He knows when to buy time. He knows when to badger. He kind of has a sense of process and how to pull the parties together. And ultimately, he finds cooperative solutions that are in everybody's own interest, but sort of on based of moderate terms. And in doing this, it's a key diplomatic skill. He understands the counterparts, but also kind of what actions might flow from their temperaments. He's quite shrewd, and I try to draw that out. And that, in a way, is kind of an interesting little seed for American diplomacy after World War II, because in my experience and those before me, the United States is most effective when it works as an alliance leader. And in a sense, what Roosevelt was able to do, even before the alliance age, was that able to get British, French, German, and other diplomats to support his sort of mediation process. So Woodrow Wilson sends troops to Europe. It's a big shift for the United States, that the, the getting us there is hard. We participate in World War I, and then we have the Versailles Treaty, and we have the attempt to, for the United States to join the League of Nations, and he fails at the United States joining the League of Nations. Tell, talk a little bit about Woodrow Wilson, but mainly talk about what is the League of Nations and why did we fail to join the League of Nations? 
So in this chapter, I focus most on the 1914 to 17 period. And, and again, you know, it's, it's a critical question of how a country decides to go to war. And this was, by 1917, everyone knew this was a terrible devastation. It's a very vivid picture of him shaking, and it's an emotional moment. Like, he realizes what he's doing, and, and you capture it quite vividly, and it's, it's yeah. striking, the passage. Yeah, I like to try to, you know, make sure that people understand these are human beings involved. And what I call this chapter is sort of Wilson, the political scientist abroad. And what I'm drawing on there is, is that for the first three years before the United States enters the war, Wilson is trying to protect the notion of neutrality, which goes all the way back to George Washington and, and Hamilton as sort of a guiding point. But neutrality was an idea of diplomacy when people thought, how do we try to regulate war. So if there's conflict between some parties, we won't let it spread. And there'll be kind of norms that will allow countries to stay neutral. And what we discover in 1914 to 17, which was the advent of the U-boat, you can't do that. There's no way that you can sort of maintain the neutral shipping. And so Wilson, as a political scientist, feels a need to explain to the American public kind of the larger purpose. And I take the view that he's trying to redefine neutrality. And he wants to stay away from old balance of power politics or alliance politics. And instead, he kind of redefines neutrality as collective security. And you can see he, he actually uses analogies. He talks about, he says, I don't favor entangling alliances, but disentangling alliances, which he kind of describes as collective security. And he describes, based on your other point, well, we're expanding the Monroe Doctrine to the world. So it's kind of the cooperation at least the image of, of the Monroe Doctrine. And as you suggest, in some ways, this is a preview of his efforts in 1919 at peacemaking. And one of the problems is he tends to think through it himself and he works alone. He's got no, no senators on his delegation. He doesn't really consult the Republican Party. He's not really sensitive to constitutional or congressional prerogatives. By the way, FDR and Truman take a very different approach. And what I also wanted to do in this chapter, and there's going to be a book from our friend Phil Zellico coming out next year that sort of expands on this, is there's a brief window at the end of 1916, before the United States goes into the war, where the Germans and degree, the British perhaps, may be willing to have the United States mediate. And it goes right back to that Teddy Roosevelt chapter I gave. And it's, it's a brief window, but frankly, Wilson is totally incapable of doing it, and he gets no help from his colleagues. It's the opposite of Teddy Roosevelt. And so what I point out in this chapter is the nature of diplomacy is Wilson had some visionary ideas. He wasn't so bad on tactics, as I demonstrate 1914 to 17, where he had the real gap is what military people will call the operational art, the operational art between strategy and tactics, how you pull the different pieces together. Teddy Roosevelt was quite skilled at that. But Wilson, unfortunately, is a failure. So I use that chapter to, again, emphasize a different aspect of the diplomatic experience. Okay, who is Cordell Hull and why does he matter? Well, for those of you interested in trade, Cordell Hull is a Sankrasak name. So Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State under Franklin Roosevelt, the longest serving Secretary of State. He's from 1933 to 44. People may wonder, well, what does that have to do with trade? And that's because before the U.S. Trade Representative was created first in the 60s, the State Department used to handle all the trade matters. 
Now, Cordell Hall was a long-serving member of Congress, Ways and Means Committee, briefly a senator, and he became the foremost expert on trade in the Congress. When Roosevelt was elected, he probably knew he was going to act on foreign policy himself. Democrats had been out of office since the Wilson period. And so Cordell Hull, with his focus on trade, was a possible figure in terms of becoming Secretary of State. Now, people may recall a few years earlier in 1930, Congress had passed the Smoot-Hawley Bill, which raised the average U.S. tariff to 59%. Our trade by volume fell 40 to 70% by volume and value. And we'd slipped into an age of economic autarky, and you started to get regional blocks like that that Japan led with the Great East Asia co-prosperity sphere. So in 1934, Paul is the promoter of something called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. And for students of Congress today, it's a shocking act. When I looked up the act, it's only three pages long. It's amazing. But it's huge in terms of its historical importance because it shifts the trade policy from Congress setting individual tariffs on 30,000 items, as they had done for 150 years, to the idea that the executive branch could negotiate agreements to lower tariffs. And in that first bill, they didn't even have to go back to Congress, but they only could cut the tariffs by about 50%. An interesting aspect of this for people who study the New Deal, they'll know that a lot of authorities were granted by Congress to the executive in the 30s and have stayed in the executive branch. And Roosevelt wanted this trade authority to be permanent, but Congress said, no, 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 three years. So as you know, whether it's fast track or trade promotion authority, this is an obligation the executive has. And indeed, you'll see next year the trade promotion authority expires. So this chapter gives you a window on trade, constitution, domestic politics. And then there's the challenge of making it work. And I found this wonderful incident that one of Hull's, even after he gets this legislation through, he has a rival named George Peck, who is basically negotiating managed trade arrangements. He's kind of the ancestor of Bob Lighthizer in his first base deal. But one of the problems that Peck does is early example is with Nazi Germany. So he works out this deal that's basically a barter. You get German wines for cotton and so on and so forth. Roosevelt signs off on the deal. And I think Hull was one of the few people that could best Roosevelt in politics because he points out the flaws of this arrangement and then adds the fact that there's many American constituencies that don't like the idea that this would free up resources for Nazi Germany to be able to have military resources. So Hull wins and he goes on to negotiate 31 agreements with 28 countries, but equally important as lowering tariffs as he did. Each of those agreements had some core principles, most favored nation, sort of national treatment, and trying to move all barriers into tariffs so you could lower them. Those principles become the basis of the 1947 GATT Accord, which later becomes the WTO Accord. And to relate history to more recent experience, when I became U.S. Trade Representative in 2001, you may remember, Dan, we'd had the Seattle breakdown of the effort to negotiate in WTO negotiations. There was an anti-globalization movement. The multilateralism was somewhat stuck in the trade area. And I used the whole principle of trying to use bilateral agreements to push for multilateral rules. So I started all those free trade agreements. We now have free trade agreements with 20 countries and 17 of them came out of that push that I had. The other two were Mexico and Canada under NAFTA and, and, and Israel. But the same principle, not that I wanted to just only do bilateral agreements, but I could build a co competition and liberalization and thereby sort of create rules for the future. 
And that faces an interesting question today. So, you know, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as you know, was with 11 other countries. Six of those we already had free trade agreements with based on the model that I had started. You would have never been able to put TPP together if you hadn't had the experience of that. The United States under Trump pulls out, but now we see there's an RCEP agreement with China, there's a TPP without the United States, European Union is moving ahead with different agreements. And one of the questions for the Biden administration will be whether we get back in the game. I'd want to talk about Vandenberg. I'd want to talk about Vannevar Bush, really important figures that are not captured. I've done a whole series on Arthur Vandenberg, who I think is a heroic figure, a critical figure. I knew nothing about Vannevar Bush, the sort of the father of American science and technology policy associated with MIT, takes on a government role and is critical in World War II, both with the Manhattan Project, but other issues as well in balancing technology and science and technology in a democratic society. Some really, really central issues, envisions the internet. This guy's off the charts amazing, right? Someone I'd never heard of, amazing. I apologize. I don't want to do injustice to either Vannevar Bush nor Arthur Vandenberg, two heroes of mine. I didn't know I Vannevar Bush was one of my heroes, but he's now one of my heroes. Arthur Vandenberg is absolutely one of my heroes. But I want to fast forward to George H.W. Bush. So you worked for George H.W. Bush. You, I want to give you a lot of credit. You very rarely in the sections prior to Ronald Reagan and search yourself either obtrusively or unobtrusively. There's a handful of appropriate places where you do it. So I thought you did very well. Either you did this or your editor did it. But then you appropriately have a role in a number. You were you were in the Reagan administration. You were in George H.W. Bush's administration. You played significant roles in Bush 43. But why is George H.W. Bush so important? Tell us about that. Why, what's his role in all this? As historians look back on Bush 41, They'll recognize, at least in foreign policy, the critical role of the Bush-Baker relationship. So as you mentioned, Dan, you know, I worked for Baker for eight years at Treasury, the State Department, and briefly as White House Deputy Chief of Staff when he went back as Chief of Staff. And in some ways, you haven't seen a relationship between a President and Secretary of State since Jefferson and Madison. And in some ways, this relationship was closer. It was almost like an older and a younger brother. And what, what people often mistake about Bush 41 is that he was a gentleman and he was prudent, but he was also fiercely competitive, as you could see with the way he played golf or boats or anything else. And he looked to Baker as his person on point, as kind of the action officer. And Baker, by instinct, was always focused on sort of results, not talk, how we could take initiative. And he was very comfortable with the use of U.S. power, but he also was careful not to abuse it. So one of the comments that best fits him is kind of the iron fist in the velvet glove. You didn't want to cross him. You didn't want to be his enemy. And you wanted to be his friend if you could. And he has obviously extremely effective political and negotiating skills. So in this chapter, what I try to focus on is the early 1989 period before German unification, which I was also involved with. And what I want to highlight here was how they saw the alliance as the first priority. And a lot of historians who focused on Gorbachev kind of overlooked this part of policy because what they forget is after Ronald Reagan had eliminated the intermediate range missiles in the INF negotiation, the only missiles left were called SNF, the short range forces. NATO had agreed to modernize those missiles, but the Germans felt, as one German politician said, the shorter the missiles, the better the Germans. Why are we the only ones that have left on the front line? And so Bush and Baker recognized that 
frankly, the priority before dealing with Gorbachev was to solidify relations in the alliance, including with Germany on the front line. So they came up with this extremely bold conventional forces proposal, which led to the quickest arms control negotiation kind of in the U.S. experience. And it was based on the idea that NATO and the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact would both lower and then equalize their military forces. Now, this means that the nuclear deterrent had less of a role. But equally important, it was a way of getting the Soviet forces to leave Eastern Europe. And it captures a very interesting different view about the end of the Cold War. Thatcher, even George Shultz, who's 100 years old now, kind of will often say, look, the Cold War ended in 88, given the Reagan-Gorbachev relationship. When we took over in 89, frankly, we felt that the division of Europe, which was the whole start of the Cold War, that had to be alleviated. So it was a different concept. And what I've tried to demonstrate in this chapter was the idea of before Bush started to really engage Gorbachev, he needed to get his strength back within his alliance partners. That has a relevance to today in that while I, I don't think a Cold War prism is the right way to look at China, I definitely think the starting point for Biden is to re-strengthen relations with European and Asian partners before going full bore with China. People often say, well, Trump recognized you know, the threat of China but he certainly didn't do anything with our partners to be able to leverage our future position. And so in addition to that, what I try to emphasize is Bush, while he only served four years, in some ways there's an irony. A lot of his policies set the tone for the next 16 years under both Clinton and Bush 43, his son, because it was not only the policy with Europe and then the USSR or afterwards the breakup, it was the Gulf War Coalition and the Middle East peace process that Baker started afterwards. It was the NAFTA Accord, as we talked about. It was the Uruguay Round that created the WTO. It's the APEC in Asia. And many people forget the only climate change agreement that we ever ratified, the CIP ratified, was done in 92. And I had the good fortune, I guess, of being on the scene for, for guiding that one, too. So it's sort of the zealot of foreign policy. So here's the question. So I, I read your book. I enjoyed it very much. Again, the book is called America and the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Okay, so if you had a meeting with the new incoming Secretary of State or the new National Security Advisor, the new Secretary of the Treasury or President-elect Biden himself, what does this book tell the incoming Biden administration? So the first part we kind of touched on with your interest in Vandenberg is if I were Tony Blinken or President-elect Biden, I'd make sure I made a lot of calls to senators, not only my authorizing committee, but my appropriators, or as you know, for the 150 account for international funding, because an effective secretary of state and president relationship with Congress enhances their power abroad. It will enhance the secretary of state's relations with his or her colleagues in the department. And frankly, it'll be better for the state department. So that's uh, sort of the starting point. And by the way, I think you're seeing Biden do that. I had some sense that, that Tony will as well. But then I think we're at a point where the real challenge here is to connect some of the domestic policy with the international policy. So as you know, the number one occupation for the Biden administration will be to deal with the pandemic and the economic recovery. And here there's a rough analogy. When Baker was chief of staff to Reagan in 81, he said, Mr. President, you have three priorities economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. Well, there's going to be a similar question for Biden here with pandemic and economic recovery. 
And as you know, the, the other lists he has to deal with, climate, immigration, sort of racial issues, it's a huge domestic agenda. But there are some possibilities to leverage you know, what some people would call the transnational issues internationally. So I would think that the climate issues, the biological security issues, some of the digital issues would allow the United States to rebuild relations with alliance partners in both Europe and the Pacific, not overlooking the traditional issues of power, whether it be nuclear weapons or you know, threats from regional hegemons or others. But then based on that, really working with our allies on the two biggest challenges, which are the future of free societies and China. So as we've touched on the Chinese relationship. I suppose the other key advice that I would emphasize is don't ignore the economic relations, as you and I have said. This is my concern because I think for the United States to be effective internationally or as we talked about in the North American relationships, and it really goes back to the Marshall Plan in 1947-49, you need to have an economic component. I'm a little worried that because of some of the protectionist impulses in the Democratic Party, they'll be, be too cautious on this. But as you know, I've written some pieces in the Wall Street Journal and others sort of offering ways that you might be able to rebuild the basis for trade policy. And the last point, because you're a, a strong student of this, I think would be quite interesting to watch is there'll be some real challenges for international coordination here. So to appoint a former Secretary of State, John Kerry, as the lead on climate change, highlights climate change, but in some ways it then asks, well, if climate change is core to your foreign policy, shouldn't it be the Secretary of State's responsibility? And it brings us right back to the issue I just touched on, which is, I believe an active approach to climate's a good idea, but how will you integrate it with your alliance policies? How will you integrate it with your China policies? How do you avoid the criticism that you're giving away other issues with China because you're trying to push on climate? So there'll be a challenge here of trying to sort of integrate these dimensions into the broader foreign policy. And as you know from other discussions, the underlying tension will be for some of these transnational issues, biological security, climate, economics, you're going to need to figure out how to work with authoritarian systems. On the other hand, we want to emphasize our democratic friends as part of a great power competition. Well, those two sometimes can clash. And so that will be a big challenge for them as they develop their strategy. So, Bob, how should we think about China? There's no doubt that under Xi Jinping, that he's focused much more on what he was concerned to be kind of the decay in the Communist Party. And he strengthened the role of the Communist Party, he strengthened the role of the center in the state. He certainly moved beyond the policies of Deng Xiaoping about, you know, hide your strength, bide your time. And at the same time, and most recently with the experience with Trump and decoupling and COVID, you're going to see an economic approach that tries to focus on this dual circulation, more sort of self-sufficiency. On the other hand, there's sort of a combination of hubris and an insecurity here, because at the end of the day, the success of the Communist Party depends on the economic success. So they don't want to give up on the international economic relationships. But in my view, they've been overplaying their hand and bullying in some of these relationships as we've seen with Australia and others. And so I think under Trump, frankly, the China relationship was used as much to attack some of his predecessors and his enemies within the United States. The bilateral trade accord ended up being you know, pretty much a flop. It's only been about 50% approved. Late in the administration, they just focused on confrontation for the sake of confrontation. 
So I think in the near term, you frankly want to try to find some off ramps to sort of decompress some of the potential for conflict. But you want to focus on your allies' relationships, on security, economics. And then you have to figure out, in a sense, how together with others, we can push the Chinese to recognize that if they want to have an aggressive foreign policy, it'll conflict with their interests of sort of economic growth. And then you'll have to negotiate on some of these other issues where you can find common ground. I've noted, you know, over the years that, and, you know, Xi has changed this to a degree, but take, for example, intellectual property rights. If you start to dig in the details of this, you see that China's built intellectual property rights courts. Foreigners are now winning cases 85 to 90% of the time, but the penalties aren't high. And similarly, with forced technology transfer, I related a lot of the problem to the joint venture requirements, which is create this temptation to take the technology. And I noticed in the Financial Times that Europe is negotiating with China to end a lot of the joint venture requirements. I frankly think that would be more effective than kind of the managed trade approach about, you know, buy so many soybeans, buy so much of this. And at the last point, while I believe you need to both compete and cooperate with China, we should always stand for American values. So the difference I would have on, say, Hong Kong policy, as opposed to just sanctioning people, I'd open the door for people from Hong Kong to come to the U.S. What better way to show the difference in the two societies? Give them asylum. Reagan did this quite artfully while also negotiating with the Soviet Union. So this will be another challenge of coordination for the new administration. And again, my suggestion would be, first, rebuild your partnerships. It'll be easier if we have an international economic agenda. But then try to also push on China the fact that if they're aggressive or hostile or trying to dominate the Western Pacific, they will get a response. Are you optimistic about the United States' ability to lead the world in the future? The United States has the capacity and capability to do this. What I've always emphasized, Dan, as you know, is it's not only a question of military and government power, which is quite extensive, but it's the innovation of the United States. That goes a little bit to that chapter on Van Eber Bush and science and technology. I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's not only software and Silicon Valley, but look what how energy revolution was created by the whole effort of fracking and shale gas. We look at sort of vaccine development. So the challenge for the United States is how do we combine those and kind of how we don't lose faith in ourselves. So I think in coming back to, you know, the Trump years obviously emphasized transactional relations, kind of dismissed alliances. But at the end of the day, if you're Japan or South Korea or Australia, what are you going to do in security if you don't have the United States? Or frankly, you know, the French forces in Africa rely heavily on American logistics and uh, intelligence capacity. Now, that doesn't mean we have a right to act as a bully. If you treat other partners with respect, you're going to get more help. That brings you back a little bit to our discussion about Bush and Baker, who were quite effective in using U.S. power while bringing others along. My favorite film is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I watch it every Christmas. And uh, Clarence the Angel says "No," in the book, he inscribes the book, says no man's a failure if he has friends. In my view, the United States is never going to be a failure if it has friends. But for us to be a, to have friends, we got to be a friend. So I know that's a deep thought from a think tank. I'm not saying that's the deepest of thoughts, but sometimes the simplest of thoughts go a long way. Bob, thanks a lot. This is great. Again, the book's called America and the World, History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. This is a fabulous book. I read every page. I loved it. Bob, thank you for doing this. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for writing this book. Let's stay in touch. And I look forward to seeing a lot of you in, virtually or in person, hopefully, in 2021. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 